Good morning. It's good to see you this morning as we worship the Lord together. In just a little bit, we'll also be celebrating communion and God's incredible gift of his son, Jesus Christ. A couple things. I know Josh shared some of the things coming up. Uh, again, Discover Hannaford. If you are newer to Hannaford, we'd love for you to join us immediately following this service. We'll have a light lunch and just share some of the different aspects of our ministry, and we'd love to have you uh, come and join uh, with us if you are newer to Hannaford. Next week, we do have a new members class during the 9 o'clock hour. If you have an interest in becoming a member, please uh, come to that 9 o'clock next Sunday. And a thing that I need to uh, mention, I know uh, many of you know, but some may not, the uh, memorial for Galen Dowdy is scheduled for February 7th. That's 11 o'clock, Wednesday, February 7th. And uh, most of you know Galen, obviously very involved in teaching here at Hannaford. And uh, so please pray for Betty and Adam and Sarah and the rest of the family. And uh, in the bulletin, Galen had a passion for ministry, and, and two of the areas, uh, he went to Africa, I want to say six or seven times working with pastors and churches there in Africa, and uh, there's an African children's min- uh, mission that he's very passionate about, and also Mizpah, our church camp, he has great passion for, so at his request, uh, Consider helping in those two ministries. There's information in the bulletin about that. And uh, so 11 o'clock on the 7th, we also could use people that would be able to help with some of the food. So if you're able to do that, please contact the church office. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we are in awe of who you are. And as we've been singing, we can come and sing hallelujah and worship you. And as we look at your word this morning, may nothing distract us from the principles that you have for us today. Lord, may we come not just for knowledge's sake, but Lord, may we be changed and apply the principles of your word in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure most of you on a weekly basis uh, look back and uh, check out your yearbook, right? Anybody know where their yearbook is? Okay, there's a few people that know where their yearbook is. And uh, I remember it was fascinating. And and every once in a while, probably once every four to six years, I may go back. I saved, I think, at least my senior year yearbook. And it reminds you of different things. But one of the things that we had in our yearbook, and I think it's a fairly common yearbook inclusion, is the most likely section. And we as a senior class in Belgrade High, 1982, 69 graduates, proud, green and white, let's fight, fight, fight. But uh, we, uh, we had that where we voted on most likely. And that different areas, you know, most athletic, most intelligent, things like that. And, uh, and so there, there are different different areas, but one of the areas, one of the things that we voted on was most likely to succeed. Although I voted many times, I didn't win, but uh, I tried. But Brent and Amy, 
most likely to succeed. Now, I think when we were in third grade, Brent and Amy would have been voted most likely to succeed. Everyone knew. Different people were pegged. You knew who the athletic ones were. You knew who the ones that were going to uh, maybe uh, stretch rules a little more. You knew the ones that were going to be considered successful. One of the things, and we've been talking about against the flow, Jesus did some things that were unconventional. And one of the things that we find is Jesus' choices in different areas. And this morning, as we're continuing on in the book of Luke, and we're in Luke chapter 5, we'll see that Jesus makes one of those unique choices. Unlike Brent and Amy in the most likely to succeed, we see that Jesus chose someone to be one of his disciples that would not have been on anyone's top 10 or top 100 list. But we can find out some amazing things, and while we do that, it also is a challenge to each of us. And we're introduced to a guy named Matthew. He's also called Levi, and he's introduced to us here first time in Luke chapter 5, in the book of Luke the first time, as Levi. He uh, becomes more commonly known as Matthew, and that's who we probably remember him as, the same guy that wrote the first gospel. So Matthew, the sinful outcast. We're introduced to him in, in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 29. It says, after these things, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. So we see here Jesus is still in his early ministry in the region of Galilee. He's been in a town called Capernaum. And while there, he went by the tax office of a man named Levi, or Matthew, and Jesus asked him to do something very difficult. Drop everything and follow me. Now, there are several things to notice in these verses and the verses that follow. First thing that we notice that while Matthew was very high on the income scale, it's important to know that he was very low on the social scale. And for the people standing there, he was an odd choice for Jesus to ask to be one of the disciples. He was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were considered the scum of society. They were the lowest of the low on the social scale. They symbolize the worst of sinners. In the Jewish culture, tax collectors were considered unclean. They were barred from the synagogue and most areas of the temple. They were not allowed to testify in court because they were considered liars. They couldn't be trusted. Now, that should remind you of another group of people we looked at a couple months ago as we were preparing for Christmas, the shepherds. Just like the 
tax collectors, the shepherds, were not allowed to testify in court because it was felt they couldn't be trusted. And, and isn't it interesting? Another one of God's odd choices. The shepherds were the ones who were called to go to Bethlehem to give testimony or to testify of the birth of Jesus Christ. The same ones that couldn't testify in a court of law, but yet God called on them to testify of the birth of the Savior. So we see Matthew as a tax collector was not looked upon well. Scripture is filled with odd choices of God, and we can go over and over. I mean, we can go spend a long period of time looking at some of God's odd choices. Just a couple. Remember Moses. Moses was the man with the speech impediment whom God chose to be his spokesman for the nation of Israel in Egypt. Gideon, the man who was too scared to thresh the grain out in the open, the Midianites were there, and if you look at the geography, they were probably several miles away. But Gideon, and, and what they would do to thresh the grain is they would throw it up in the air, and the chaff, which was a lot lighter, would be blown out, and the good grain would come down, and that's how they would, that's how they would get the chaff out of the grain. But he was hiding, trying to get this chaff out because he was scared to death of the Midianites. And what did God do? comes and says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor, you are going to lead my people courageously in a battle against the Midianites. God has odd choices. And we see that God here chooses Matthew, a tax collector, looked down upon by the people, but recognized by God. Luke, in his Gospels, shares three stories about tax collectors. We see this story here in Luke 5, the story here of Matthew, who gave up everything to follow Jesus. In Luke 18, we, we find a parable that Jesus shares about a tax collector and a Pharisee. The Pharisee prayed proudly in the temple so everyone could see and he thanked God that he was not like that tax collector. But the tax collector says he stood afar off and humbly prayed for God's forgiveness. A couple things, if you look at that story, he wouldn't even dare raise his head because his humility before an all-powerful God. It also says that he stood afar off. Why does it mention that? Well, if the Pharisee was standing there in the temple, the tax collector wasn't allowed in that same place where the Pharisee was. But yet it says that Jesus said that that tax collector went home forgiven. The Pharisee did not. And we see a third example of a tax collector found in Luke chapter 19, and that's the story of Zacchaeus. If you grew up in the church, you probably, as soon as you hear that, start humming the tune. You know, there was Zacchaeus, was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He went up in a sycamore tree, the Lord he wanted to see, and what happened? The Lord said, you come down today because I'm going to your house. And what happened? Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house, 
Again, Zacchaeus, like Matthew, not the most popular guy in town. But Zacchaeus repented and he said, I'm going to repay fourfold things that I've stolen from people. And I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. A changed life. And so we see the three examples of tax collectors that Luke shares all demonstrate humility, repentance, and follow Jesus. Now, you have to understand why the the Jews were not excited about the tax collectors. They considered them sellouts to the Romans. Turncoats. And how dare they support Rome. And in their mind, in supporting Rome, they turned their back on the Jews. But it's important for us to recognize that God can look at our past deficiencies and look past our sinful lives and forgive our sins. And he can see what we can become in Christ. And God chose Matthew. Now, I'm sure the religious leaders who by now were following Jesus, and we'll see that here in these next verses, noticed. But even the disciples noticed. But God can look past our sin. He can look past our deficiencies. And through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and God's work in our life, he sees redeemed people who can become his followers. The name Matthew means a gift of God. And God used him in mighty ways as a disciple, as an author. Again, he wrote the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. He was also a leader in the early church. But accepting Matthew, not only did the religious leaders question it, but I'm sure the other disciples questioned Matthew. He had taken the Jews' money in support of Roman for himself. And and tax collectors, what often they would do is is they would pay a large sum to Rome to be given that position, and then they would be given the power and authority of Rome to collect taxes. And the Romans had some exorbitant taxes. But then the tax collector earned their money by collecting more. And they would abuse the authority of the Roman government to extort from the people. And so they were considered cheats, money-hungry scoundrels. But there was another aspect, too. Obviously, the Jews did not have an affectionate feeling towards the Romans. And so they would be charged great amounts of money that most would go into the coffers of Rome. And and what would Rome do? Rome would turn around and persecute the Jews, even kill Jews. And so they didn't have an appreciation of tax collectors. But I want us to notice something else as as Jesus here is in the middle of collecting the disciples. The group that he got, a couple things that are important to notice. First of all, he didn't choose those who would be considered most likely to succeed. 
But he chose people of character. Now, again, they were a work in progress. But they also were quite different in their backgrounds. And Matthew reminds us of that. And I'm going to look at two in particular. Matthew, who is pretty well known of the disciples, especially since he wrote the, the book of Matthew, one of the four Gospels. But there was another one of the disciples named Simon the Zealot. And we think that's eh, sort of an, a unique, unusual title. What was a zealot? Well, the zealots were Jews that spent their try, time trying to create friction and stand against the Roman Empire. They would do everything they could to sort of just arouse the people to fight the Romans. And so as two of his 12 disciples, Jesus has Matthew, the one who was considered a Roman sympathizer, and Simon the Zealot, who was a thorn in the Romans' flesh. But yet God chose these and the other disciples together. And they stood with Jesus. Now again, often there were times when they did not stand well. But they were the ones that Jesus chose to be his followers. And for us, we're not all the same. We have different backgrounds. We may have different passions. But we have a singular purpose. And that purpose is to honor our Lord and serve him. And as a church family, we're called to do that together and to take our gifts and our abilities and our passions and, and work together with others to impact our community and our world for our Savior. And we don't know who all was there in the crowd, but you can think of the disciples when they recognized that Jesus called Matthew. I'm sure many of them knew him because all but one of the disciples were from that same region. Why did Jesus choose him? Jesus, come over here. Uh, let's talk. But yet, Jesus saw something in Matthew that others didn't see. We see that Matthew left everything to follow Jesus. There are two verbs, there's actually three verbs in 28, verse 28, but two of the verbs in 28 point out to the sacrifice that Matthew made to follow Jesus. The first one is the word left. In the Greek, it's in the aorist tense, which emphasizes a decisive point in time. He made a decision, I'm leaving everything I have, I'm going to follow Jesus. It was a committed decision. He left it all. And then another verb in 28, we read followed. Or it actually could be began following. It's in the imperfect tense. It's emphasizing a continual pattern of doing something. For Matthew, it was a continual pattern of following Jesus. I'm going to this point in time. Jesus said, follow me. And Matthew said, all right, right now I'm leaving everything else behind. And I'm continually following my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He left it all. Now, the other disciples gave up much, and I don't mean to minimize what they gave up. 
But if we think about it, Matthew's choice was even harder. Now think about it, the fishermen. And again, they gave up a lot. But the fishermen, they could go back to fishing. In fact, they did. If you remember, after the resurrection and and Jesus had died and rose again. But what happens one day, Peter says, hey, let's go fishing. (laughs) He's not with us anymore, so let's go back to what we knew. And they did. Of course, Jesus shows up on the shore, and they catch a bunch of fish. Peter recognizes he comes and worships, and his life is, goes back to following Jesus full time. But Matthew, you have to understand, he had a really good job. Didn't make a lot of friends, but made a lot of money. And he gave it all up knowing that he would not be able to go back because somebody else would happily take that position and the opening of the position would not be available for Matthew. What are we willing to give up in order to follow Jesus? We can assume that he was wealthy. Tax collectors, it was a very prosperous business. But also the description of the party at his house in verse 29 points to the idea that he was doing pretty well. He had a nice house. He could put on a pretty nice party. So we see he gave it all up. But not only that, we see that that Matthew had to bring his friends to Jesus. He couldn't just keep it to himself. He had to tell them. So he dropped everything to follow Jesus there in verse 28, and then in verse 29, he has the party. He calls everybody together, all of his friends. You notice his friends, the fellow scum of the earth, the other tax collectors and others like them. And he brings them together because they have to meet this Jesus. And he puts on a big spread so his friends could meet his Savior. Now, if you remember from last week, as we looked earlier in chapter 5 at, at those four friends of the paralytic, or paralytic, do you remember them? What was the key? The fact that they knew they needed to have their friends see Jesus because Jesus was his only hope. And Matthew had that same attitude. His friends needed to meet Jesus who could change their lives. And we have that same challenge as we looked at last week to make sure those around us within our sphere of influence have the opportunity to meet the Savior. But then we see the religious leaders, self-righteous ones. Notice verses 30 through 35. It says, And the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make friend or can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. So the religious leaders asked two questions. Question number one is 
Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? <laughs> Why are you hanging out with those people? And the second one, and again, it was the religious leaders that were asking the question, why don't you fast like we do and like John the Baptist's disciples do? You have to understand the religious leaders lived lives of comparison. They were trying to look better than those around them. The religious leaders were focused on themselves and not on others. Everything was about them. The only time that others were brought into the equation was when they wanted everyone to notice. They, being the religious leaders, wanted everyone to notice how much better they were than everyone else. You notice their self-focus in the response to what was taking place in Matthew's life. They knew about Matthew, too. And what were they concerned about? Not maybe Matthew was turning over a new leaf. Maybe he was going to be a changed man. No, they were concerned about how dare Jesus spend time with those people. It was all about them. They weren't going to associate with those unclean outcasts. How dare Jesus do that? Many of, many of us watched the movie Jesus' Revolution. If you remember in the movie, the, they were having the uh, hippies that came and joined. And uh, Chuck Smith, I believe, was the name of the pastor. And, and the people of the church, very small congregation, but boy, they were special. And most of them were not excited about the riffraff, that's a Greek word, the riffraff that Chuck Smith was inviting into the church. In fact, most of them left rather than rub shoulders with those people. But if you remember the story, that one of the deacons that went over and sat with the outcasts, these religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, were like the rest of those church members who didn't want to be associated with sinners. And what was Jesus' response? He said, I didn't come to save the well. The physician doesn't come to, to those people who are well. It comes to the sick. I've come to save sinners. Now, he wasn't saying that the Pharisees and scribes were not sinners. He was saying they didn't recognize it. And so we see these religious leaders focused on themselves, but they were blind by their own pride. Have you ever tried to help someone with directions who doesn't think they're lost? Now, I know there's some wives right now sort of glancing slyly at their husbands, right? We're not going to stop for direction. Now, it's changed so much with GPS, right? Now, now you just, you know, punch it in and it takes you exactly where you need to go. But think back to the time. Somebody that thinks they know or like working on a project with that person who sets the directions aside and does it without the directions because we know how to do it. And by the way, I'm probably one of those people. The religious leaders didn't recognize that they were lost. 
but Matthew did. And that wasn't a difference. The difference wasn't that one was a non-sinner and the other one was that needed help. They both needed help. Matthew was the one who recognized it. And he chose to follow Jesus. But the religious leaders were blinded by their own pride. They brought up the question of fasting. Now, you have to understand, Jewish law only has one set fast, and that was the Day of Atonement they were called to fast. Now, it doesn't mean that other times of fasting were wrong, but that was the one time they had set up. But in their traditions, they began to add more and more fast. Now, oftentimes a person would fast when they were grieving or mourning. They would, gra- they would fast to seek God. As they would fast, they would voluntarily abstain from food for a period of time with the purpose of drawing near to their God. It's interesting, I read that the Puritans called fasting soul fattening. In other words, they were to fast from things that can crowd out their time with God. And and when you, you give up that meal or meals, you're to focus on God and his satisfaction in your life. He can satisfy you. Now, we talk about fasting and usually we think about food. I want you to think of other things. So maybe there's some things that you should fast from. Not necessarily bad things, but things that keep you from focusing on God. What would happen if you say, I'm going to take a week without social media or football? You say, yeah, that'll be next week because it's between the championship games and the Super Bowl. So next week I won't watch. Or something else in your life that may keep you from focusing on God. And again, not necessarily a bad thing. Just something that takes God's place in your priority list. But fasting, this was fasting from food. Gary Hamrick, a pastor in Virginia, lays out a helpful list of what fasting is to be and not to be. I I enjoyed this list. He says, fasting is not a Christian diet plan. Fasting is not a ritual to show you're more spiritual. That's the one the Pharisees and scribes struggled with. Fasting is not intended to punish the flesh. Fasting is not required. You don't need to fast to be a Christian. But we do see that fasting is encouraged and it will be rewarded. Probably the most familiar passage on fasting is Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is giving what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and he's actually talking about three different things that we do. We pray, we give alms, and we fast. And he was using it, and by the way, in the middle of that, we have what we call the Lord's Prayer, or the example prayer is in the middle of this passage of Scripture, the first verses, first 18 verses of Matthew 6. But as he talks about fasting, he says, when you fast, don't fast like the Pharisees who make themselves look sickly and and stand there so people will recognize their fasting. When they fast, they will get their reward, the, the awe of people. And here's what would happen. You see, now, again, there was really only one official fast in the Jewish law, and that was the Day of Atonement. But they had set up other times to fast. And by this time, it had gotten to where the religious leaders would fast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays which, by the way, happened to be the busiest market days. 
Isn't that interesting? And they would go and they would fast and they would go out to the market and they wouldn't clean themselves up. And, and somebody would come and say, oh, what's happening? Are you feeling sick today? Well, I'm fasting. <gasps> Ooh, that's impressive. But Jesus said, when you fast, clean yourself up. You don't need to let anyone else know what you're doing. Because what you do in secret, God will reward you openly. So fasting isn't wrong. In fact, it's a thing that you should consider, whether it be fasting for food or fasting from other things in your life to draw you closer to God. And so we see that, that Jesus' response, though, was very interesting. He said, you don't need to fast when the bridegroom was present. What's he talking about? Well, here's what was happening. The, these religious leaders, they knew their Old Testament and one of the descriptions of the Messiah was that the Messiah would be the bridegroom that would come to get their bride. And so what was Jesus saying? <laughs> he was saying, listen, my disciples don't need to fast because if you fast to be drawing near to God, I'm right here. Oh, that had to have ticked them off. Another Greek term. We see that Jesus was saying, I'm God. I'm God in human flesh. Another thing that I think oftentimes happens as Christians, we think it's more spiritual to be stoic. And with that, people wonder if there's any joy in our life. Now, there's a lot of seriousness in our relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not saying <laughs> that that's not a part of it. But I think oftentimes we are so afraid that we forget the joy of our salvation. And these religious leaders, they, uh, they struggled with that joy part. But we see here that Jesus is pointing out the fact that these religious leaders were missing. And he closes by looking at what we would call the old versus the new. And he shares a set of three parables, three pictures that contrast the old, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant with the New Testament, the New Covenant, what their law did. And again, the law was a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. The law wasn't wrong. God set up the law. But it was the point, it was to point to their need of a Savior. They demonstrated their faith in the Old Testament by following the law, and they were called to do that. God called them to do that. But Jesus came to give us life. And so we see that Jesus was saying it's going to be a little different now. Notice verses 36 through 39. It says, Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskin and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine will be, must be put in new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. What's Jesus saying? Well, he gives these three pictures. The first one about putting a patch of new material on an old piece of clothing. The patch wouldn't match. And then also it would shrink. And so have you ever 
How many of you had your, uh, probably usually it's your mom, patch your clothes? Yeah, I had that. I couldn't talk about it in first service because she was here, but I can talk about it now. Oh, I did not like that. I mean, it, it never matched. And it would always look funny. And Jesus is saying, listen, the new and the old don't match. And then he talks about wine and wineskins. And they, they would have this new wine, and it would, as it fermented, it would give off gas, it would expand, and those old brittle wineskins wine would burst, and you'd lose the wine, the wineskin would be ruined. So you needed to put the new wine in a new wineskin. And then the third is probably a little harder, or a little less clear, but I think what he's basically saying is this. They were happy with the old, and they wouldn't accept the new. And for them, the new wine would be available for a very short period of time after the harvest. But they were satisfied with the old and rather than enjoying the new. And Jesus is saying, listen, you have this old, but I've come to give you new life. I've come to make things new. And we have to understand that following, a set, or that following Jesus is not just putting a patch on an old system. What they wanted to do is simply add Jesus to their law. And Jesus said, I am something completely different. They needed to recognize that following a set of rules does not cleanse the human heart. And today, though, we have the same problems that those religious leaders as well as the people of Israel struggled with. And that's attempting to earn our way to God through works and good deeds. I'm going to impress God, but Jesus Christ is our only hope. In Isaiah in the Old Testament, it says that all of our righteousness are as filthy rags, the best we have doesn't meet God's standards. The book of, Roman tell, book of Romans tells us that we don't meet God's standard, that we are all sinners. There is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. And we see that Jesus came to change things, to make us new, when we put our faith and trust in him. You see, the struggle with these religious leaders was they focused on performance-based religion. I'm going to bring myself to God, but God's plan is a grace-based relationship as God has reached out to us through the sacrifice of his son. And so as we close, think about this, the contrast between Matthew and the religious leaders while the world looked most likely to succeed, <laughs> that's an easy answer. The religious leaders. Matthew may be rich, but he's a bum. He's a stealing Roman sympathizer. But Jesus saw Matthew as one who would give up everything to follow him. You see, there's a, great, a stark contrast between the humble repentance and obedience of Matthew and the self-religious pride, or self-righteous pride of the religious leaders. 
And if you look at the life of Matthew, we don't know a great amount about Matthew, but if you look at the life of Matthew, obviously we see a lot in his writing, the book of Matthew, 28 chapters. It's fascinating that only twice in those 28 chapters does Matthew mention his own name. The first time is when he was sharing this same narrative that we're looking at from Luke's perspective. And he mentions how he followed Jesus, but very briefly and humbly. And the only other time he mentions his own name in that book is when he lists the disciples. And obviously because God chose him to be a disciple, follower of Jesus, he was part of that list. So it shares a little bit about what God saw in Matthew. He became one of the leaders of the early church. Eventually, he was martyred for following Jesus. Tradition tells us that he was burned at the stake. We aren't 100% sure on that, but we know he was martyred for his faith. So you may be here today and you may be saying, you know, I, I don't know that God can save me. <laughs> he can. God's saving is not about our deserving it's about God's grace and love. Or you may be here today and you say, I don't know if God can use me. God has a different way of choosing. And God is looking for his followers who are willing to give it all to follow him. And that's what God asks us to do. And it's not easy, but it's worth it. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your goodness. Thank you that as Almighty God, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Help us today to be like Matthew, to be willing to sacrifice in order to follow you. Lord, help us not to be like the self-righteous religious leaders where it's all about me trying to impress others. But Lord, let us live lives to honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.